0: So, as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, every so often when we finish a section, we'll dip back to this series, the series of Bible Basics Revisited. It's actually been a while since we've been in it. Now we return to it to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we study what Your Word teaches about the Holy Spirit, we pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We know nothing about you except what we learn from this word, and this word, we are told, is the breath of God. It is breathed out through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who carried its writers, who gave them the words that express your truth sufficiently and without error. And so, Father, we pray we will heed. We pray that the Spirit of God will minister to us, will do that ministry in which he delights of bringing your truth to us and bringing our eyes and our hearts to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have heard the Holy Spirit referred to as the mysterious person of the Trinity. This phrase has long been used of him, and not for difficult reasons. Um, The names Father and Son lend themselves to persons, Father is a personal name. Son is a personal name. We know what those words mean. But then the third person of the Trinity is called Spirit. Now, that does not seem like a personal name. I mean, that lends itself to thoughts of it. And, of course, the King James Version doesn't help with its over-literal translation of verses in the New Testament that call the Holy Spirit it. And so... Hard to call someone it and think of him as we would not like to be called it. um, And we refer to the Holy Spirit sometimes uh, sloppily as it. And by that word spirit, it seems to lend itself to wild imagination and just basically making things up and saying that they're about the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that a bit more later, Lord willing. The reality of the fact, though, is that the the teaching about the Holy Spirit fills the Bible literally from the first chapter to the last. And I do mean literally. You look as far as the second verse in the Bible, and you see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the water, Genesis 1-2. You look at the end chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, and just before the end in verse 17, you see... And the Spirit and bride say, come, come to drink of living water. Here's the Spirit on water and in the first, and the Spirit offering the water of life at the very last. So the Spirit's doctrine, the Spirit's truth uh, fills the entire Bible. And a truth that I want to point out to you before we dig into the study is that he has been studied and adored throughout church history. Now, as a young Christian, I was taught and Not knowing better, I accepted that the doctrine of the Spirit hadn't really been studied throughout church history, and Thank God the charismatics came along to explain the Holy Spirit to us, and and this seriously, this was meant to explain why, when you look through all of church history, you don't see charismatic movements, you don't see people pretending to speak in tongues and doing all this in doctrinally sound Christianity. It's only with the 1900s that this starts up. And well, the explanation I was taught was that well, people hadn't really studied the doctrine of the Holy Spirit till then. And again, thank God the Holy the, the you could say holy rollers, but the, uh, the Pentecostals and Charismatics came to turn the light on. This is not at all true. You can go back to the 300s, the 400s, the 500s and find deep rich biblical work on the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin is called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. He wrote deeply and richly in the 1500s. John Owen wrote deeply and richly on the Holy Spirit in the 1600s, and neither one pretended to speak in tongues or do anything that the modern charismatics do. In fact, nobody did until the 1900s. So, it is not true that this is a recently discovered doctrine in Scripture. This is something Christians have always studied and looked into deeply and and, uh, adored. So let's us start digging in, and we'll have at least two sermons about the Holy Spirit, Lord willing. Today we're going to focus on basic truths about the Holy Spirit. Roman numeral one, then, we're going to ask and answer the question about what the Holy Spirit is. That's Roman numeral one in your outline, what the Holy Spirit is. And we will... Fix our minds on what the Bible teaches in answer to that. And we see in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as God. That's number one in your outline. He is spoken of as God. I'll just read to you, or you can turn if you like to 2 Samuel 23, verses 2 and 3, or both. 2 Samuel verse chapter 23, verses 2 and 3a. Here David is speaking. And King David says, "Now listen, <clears throat> the spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, "The rock of Israel spoke to me, dot, dot, dot." So who spoke? The spirit of Yahweh. Who spoke? The God of Israel. Who spoke? The rock of Israel. Now, the threefold description is, is interesting, but what I particularly want to focus on, first he says the spirit of Yahweh, then he says the God of Israel. Now, we've studied about Hebrew parallelism before, in Hebrew poetry, where a, word, a thought is just reworded by similar words, but it's the same thought. And so here, the spirit of Yahweh is the God of Israel. Verse 2 is equated as the God of Israel in verse three. The spirit of Yahweh is the God of Israel. Now, here's another little interesting thing, absolutely free, at no extra charge whatsoever, but a little point of Hebrew grammar. Now, like every language I know anything about besides English, in Hebrew, words have gender. They're, in Hebrew, they're masculine or feminine. In Greek, they're masculine, feminine, or neuter. So. They're masculine and feminine. There's not any, always any deep meaning. I mean, like, like in Spanish, my masculine man's hand is la mano. That's a, that's a feminine. Well, in Hebrew, the word for spirit, ruach, is a feminine word. Verbs have gender, feminine and masculine. And, and here, this is the third, this is a, a masculine uh, reference to this feminine noun. The spirit of Yahweh speaks. Though it's a feminine word, it's a masculine reference. this The Spirit is God, and He's personal. Acts 20, uh, 2 Samuel 23. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 5, please. Our next, Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. This is, if anything, even clearer. Here's Ananias and Sapphion. This just, by the way, is, I heard someone recently point out. It's odd this is not one of those gifts of the New Testament that charismatics are reviving. The gift, of striking, the gift of striking people dead if they lie about how much they give. But here's Ananias and Sapphira who did just that. And Peter is confronting Ananias. And look at verse 3. Satan, uh, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? you've not lied to men, but to God. Okay, in verse three, who did Ananias lie to? Verse three, the Holy Spirit. In verse four, who did he lie to? What's the conclusion? The Holy Spirit is God. Without a twitch, Peter refers to the Holy Spirit as God. So this is just meant to be a brief go-over, so we'll take those two verses as showing us that in Old Testament and in New Testament alike, the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. He's spoken of as God. Number two, He is revered as God. R-E-V-E-R. He is revered as God. And for this, I go to Mark chapter 3, our Lord Jesus speaking. Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now we studied that in Matthew chapter 12 in our Matthew series. Now, on occasion, the word blasphemy can be used of things creatures, things that are not God, but usually it is used of saying untrue or harmful or slanderous things about God. Now, Jesus is generally speaking of blasphemy as a category of sin, and he says, blasphemy generally is forgivable. Whatever blasphemies they utter, he says, can be forgiven, men. But then he says, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, well, you see, he puts that in a category all its own. Other levels of blasphemy can be forgiven, but this blasphemy cannot be forgiven. Now, it's just inconceivable that Jesus would so elevate the Holy Spirit as an object of of blasphemy, but see him not as God, as anyone less in reverence and in majesty than God. Jesus here exalts the Holy Spirit to the level of God. So, He is spoken of as God. Scripture calls him God. He is revered as God. And we'll look at this more fully in the future. I mean to do. But thirdly, he does the works of God. What God does, the Holy Spirit does. And I'll just single out two works that God does and the Holy Spirit does. And first, you might even guess what goes in that if you look at the verses. The first is creation. The First work that the Holy Spirit does that God does is creation. Now here, I'll ask you to turn to the easiest verse in the Bible to find, Genesis 1.1. So Genesis 1.1, turn there. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So that, you know, I always I was think, that's dumping out the Legos, you know, All the Legos are dumped out now, and now God's going to build them into things. And Now, we're introduced to God doing this, and when he does this, the Spirit of God is already hovering over the surface of the water. He's not something God created. He's already there, and he's hovering over the surface of the water. And so we're to take it that he is there and participating in everything that follows. Why introduce him otherwise? So God just... Blankly said, creates all things. And when he does, the Spirit of God is already present, working with him in the creation of all things. Now that's the thought that I want you to hold in your mind. And then turn to Isaiah 44. That's that next verse. And that's not too hard to find. It's after the book of Psalms in the middle of your Bible. And then a few books later is the book of Isaiah. You turn to chapter 44. The verse we might over, run over quickly, but let's not. Isaiah forty four twenty four. Now oh, these are wonderful chap- chapters, the forties of Isaiah. But Isaiah forty four twenty four thus says Yahweh your redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I Yahweh am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens. What are the next two words? by myself, and spreading out the earth, what's the next two words? All alone. So there is no one who is not Yahweh who is involved in creation. Are the angels involved in creation? No, they are not. They are created, they are not creators. Yahweh says only Yahweh made creation, and yet we saw in Genesis 1, God created all things, The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters working in the work of creation as God. Or else these contradict each other and that's not possible. So we learn by putting these together is that the Holy Spirit is God, he does the works of God, the works that only God does, only God creates. And the Spirit of God creates as Yahweh creates. Second is the work of revelation. So turn to John 10.35 with me, please. John 10.35 is one of those verses that the proportion of what it teaches to the size of the verse <laughs> is a great uh, a great, great contrast. It's a little bitty verse, but it teaches a whole lot. So John 10.35, Jesus says something in passing, we've got to notice. So he's he's responding to them objecting to his claims to deity and he's going to make a point from psalm 82 and that's not what we're going to look at he quotes from psalm 82 in verse uh, 34 i said you were gods but here's the point verse 35 if he called them gods to whom the word of god came and the scripture cannot be broken okay so he calls this the word of god he calls this psalm the word of god Well. Just this little part of the Old Testament that's the Word of God and what this little part of the Old Testament was The whole was the whole was the Word of God. You know Jesus often spoke of Scripture that way. He asked them "Well, Why do you invalidate the Word of God for your transition your your traditions and what does he mean by the Word of God? He means the whole Testament the whole test the whole Old Testament is the word quiz word of who? Word of God. It's the Word of God. With that in mind, now turn to Second Peter chapter one, and we'll look at verses twenty and twenty-one. So Jesus says again and again, as do others, and does the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is the Word of God. Now see what Peter says, and there are many verses like this. As I told you, we're taking a quick tour right now. Second Peter two verse twenty. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. Now when he says prophecy of Scripture, he doesn't mean just to set apart the predictive parts of Scripture. All Scripture is prophecy, because all Scripture is God's Word written by men. And that's what prophecy is. God gave His words to these men to speak and to write. So no prophecy of Scripture. Now when, when Peter's talking about Scripture, what's he referring to? Real question. What we call the Old Testament. That's what Scripture is. None of it comes by one own, one's own interpretation. So he's saying that the origin of the Old Testament is never just some guy sitting down and, and contemplating his navel or, or thinking or making diagrams or, or just, you know, reasoning things out. That's never the source of anything taught by the Old Testament. So what is the source? Verse 21 for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. A more literal translation would be men being carried by the Holy Spirit. So this very emphatically lifts up the doctrine of the Spirit's involvement in the writing of Scripture. He he carried these men so that what they ended up writing was what God wanted to say. But I say God, more specifically, what person of the Trinity? What does this say? Who carried these men? The Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. So if if these men wrote what the Holy Spirit moved them to write, then what could we say the Old Testament is the word of? It's the word of the Holy Spirit. But what does Jesus say it is? It's the word of... God. So the Holy Spirit does what God does. The work of inspiration is not a human work. It's not an angelic work. It's a work of God. And the Holy Spirit does that work. So you could equally say, and the New Testament often does, that the words of the Old Testament are the words of God, or you could say that the Old Testament's words are the words of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit moved the writers to write these words. He does the works of God. So he's spoken of as God, and he does the works of God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is God. That's what he is. If you ask, what is the Holy Spirit? He's not a creature. He's God. So, letter B, let's talk about what this means to us. In our understanding of the Holy Spirit. What does this teach us? What's the impact of this? What does this mean to us? Well, first of all, it, it teaches us that everything that is true of God as God is true of the Holy Spirit because he is identical with his essence, and there's one essence that we call God. There's just one God. And everything you can say about God as God, you must say, we must say about the Holy Spirit. I make this very simple. What is one of the attributes of God? The New Testament says God is... I heard light, true, God is holy, another, God is, okay, that one, I heard a number of words, so let's say God is love, and just go with that, so he's light, he's just and holy, this is true, and, and, and much more beside, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, all this is true of God, therefore, what, what can we say about the Holy Spirit, all those things, because he is God. He is a a subject within the one essence, the one nature of God. So everything that is true about God as God is true about the Holy Spirit. And the same as the works of God. There are no works of God that excludes the other persons of the Trinity as such. So does God create? Well, the Holy Spirit is involved in creation. Does God save? The Holy Spirit is involved in salvation. Does God preserve the elect? Then God, the Holy Spirit, is involved in preservation. Does God sanctify believers? Then the Holy Spirit is involved in sanctification, you see. He partakes of all of the perfections of God's nature, and He is involved in all the works of God. Why? Well, because He's God. And so what's a, what's a practical takeaway of that? Well, it is that we must revere the Holy Spirit as God. And and perhaps you, as I, have had the misfortune of hearing Christians make jokes about his name and, and make little cute plays on his name and say little funny things about his name. They're not funny. You don't talk about God like that. I mean, there, there's this, this hierarchy of, of majesty and glory by which you know you've got people you can say just about anything you want about, and up it goes, up it goes, and God is actually off the chart. You don't say light, insulting, ridiculing things about God. You don't say light, insulting, ridiculing things about the Holy Spirit. And, and so it's a sad thing. That that modern movement, which prides itself above all things as being a move of the Holy Spirit, is the move that that most has brought shame and depredation on His name. Because, as I've written, the charismatic movement uses the word Holy Spirit like a rug to just sweep everything under, to sweep every bizarre thing that they do under. So why are they barking like dogs? Why are they shaking uncontrollably? Why are they rolling up and down and falling down? Why are they doing irresponsible things and making um, uh, ungodly moves? Well, it's all the Holy Spirit. It's all the Holy Spirit. Why do they say things and pop off and speak as if they're speaking God? Uh, this is the Holy Spirit. And, and all of the things we see, all the things that sadly fill Justin Peters', Peters channel, these are all they've all got that they own that and that's because they own the holy spirit they say but this is this is shameful this is sad this is often blasphemous to attribute these things to him who is god and who is a person and who is a divine person so we must revere him as God and not partake in speaking him down or bringing shame to his person and um, he is worthy of our worship he's worthy of our singing as we've been singing to him uh, this morning uh, one worship leader years ago he wouldn't sing he wouldn't lead singing the chorus uh, spirit we adore you because he said we don't worship the holy spirit well why wouldn't we what well, what is wrong about that he's God and as God, he is deserving of our reverence, our, our utter and ultimate reverence, because he's God. And that's all the qualification it takes. It's the only qualification that it takes to be worthy of worship, to be God. What are those? What is that category of things that deserve worship? It's just God. <laughs> it's just God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So that's some of what this truth means to us. Uh, let's get on to a second truth. We've asked what the Holy Spirit is. He's God. Now let's ask who the Holy Spirit is, Roman numeral two, and who the Holy Spirit is. is He is a person. He is a person. He's not a thing. He's not a force. He's a person. Now, his personhood is described in eternal relations. I I will explain that to the best of my ability, what that means. If that's not immediately apparent to you, just uh, stay tuned in. And we'll go there together. He is described, that is to say, he's distinguished in eternal relations. So first we need to start with a word of review. Uh, number one, God's essence is, and the number goes in that blank. What, what number is going to go in that blank? One. That's the number. God's essence is one. There's just one God. And some of you probably can tell me what chapter goes in the verse there. Deuteronomy, what for? That's very good, very good. That's right, Deuteronomy 6.4 is a verse that all Christians should know. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. So there's only one essence of God. So God is love, God is light, God is holy. There are not three loves. There are not three lights. There are not three holy ones. There is one God who is love, one God who is light, one God who is holy, and all of his other perfections, uh, which are many. They are many, but they are one in the one essence of God. And as I've uh, tried to uh, make clear in the past, they're not set off from each other. He is, he is everything he is all at the same time. Wow, that is the correct response. Wow. There is none like him. There's absolutely none like him. He is one in essence. But number two, God's persons are, what number goes in that blank? Three. He is one in one way, but he is three in another way. His persons are three. And uh, through the years, we've uh, referred to the first person of the Trinity, second person, third person of the Trinity. So the first person of the Trinity is called Father, Father. And I'll just read this verse to you. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6a. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. So one person of the one God is called Father, and we refer to him as the first person. The second person is called Son. That's correct. Now, here's a a couple of good verses. Look at John 1.18 with me. Please. That's the first verse we'll look at. Ah, oh, there's so much in the first chapter of John. We're just going to focus for a moment on this one verse and get a couple of precious truths out of it. So John 1.18. John throws another diamond on, a, on the pile that he's making. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So he is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father. He is the son of that father and he is begotten. He is the only begotten. There is only one who stands in this relationship to God the father. And that is, well, what's he called here? God. And it's his father. So he's the son. He's the only begotten son in the bosom of the father who makes the father known and this this begottenness it has no birthday it has no beginning this is an eternal begetting. you say i don't understand that i say that is to be expected <laughs> we're speaking about eternity and an infinite god and our our brains just go up to that fence and hook our little fingers in the chain links and that's as far as we can go that 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 is that is our limit. We can look and see what scripture tells us and what scripture tells us, God doesn't change, but the son is eternally begotten and he's the only begotten of the father. Now, compare this then with 2nd John, the second letter of John, not the second chapter, but 2nd John and verse 3. There's only one chapter in 2nd John. So, 2nd John verse 3 And the apostle writes, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. So in this one God, one person is called Father, the first person. One person is called Son, and we're told expressly that he is the only begotten Son of the Father. And now number three, the third person is called Spirit. The third person is called spirit, Genesis 1 verse 2. And the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So let me just say a brief thing about that and then open it up a little bit more hopefully with the next number. So you see that there is only one God, but what what distinguishes person from person is the relations they stand in towards each other. The Father is the Father of the Son. The Son is the Son of the Father. The Holy Spirit, as we'll see in just a moment, proceeds from the Father uh, and the Son. He's like we just sung a few moments ago. He is the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. He proceeds from both. And so what distinguishes them is the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Spirit is neither Father and Son. You tell them apart by the fact of the relations that they stand in towards each other. Now let me open this up a little bit more uh, regarding the Holy Spirit and number, pardon me, number three, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from Father and Son. So proceeds is P-R-O-C-E-E-D-S. He eternally proceeds from Father and Son. Now don't, don't glance over the word eternally, because that's a very important important word. It means we're talking about something, an act that has no beginning. It has always been thus. His relationship to Father and Son has always been and will always be that He proceeds from Father and Son. Here's some verses that either assert or reflect this. One is Matthew 3.16. Matthew 3.16, and I'll just... You can turn there, I will read it to you. Uh, I would like to turn to the next ones. Matthew 3.16, it's familiar. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opening, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. So he's the Spirit of God. He is not God the Father, but he's the Spirit of God the Father. And as in eternity he proceeds from the Father, we see in this mission in time, he comes from the Father too and settles on the Son. But he's the Spirit of God. But he's not just the Spirit of God. Jesus tells us more in John fifteen twenty-six. Now I would like, to turn, uh, like you to turn there if you would please. John fifteen twenty-six. A great deal of teaching about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, 15, 16. So, in John fifteen twenty six, Jesus says, when the advocate comes, the advocate is a, a name he's giving the Holy Spirit, parakletos, when they, that's the Greek word, when the advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, there's a, a participle, there's a, there's a timeless word, I think, there. He doesn't just say the Spirit of God who the Father will send. He says the Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. So I take that to mean that this is eternally so. The Spirit of truth always proceeds from the Father. So this distinguishes the Father from the Spirit. Their names distinguish them from each other. The Father's the Father, the Spirit's the Spirit. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Father does not proceed from the Spirit. They're not reversible, these relations. So, the Spirit comes from the Father, and look at John 20, 22, towards the end of the Gospel, the resurrected Lord Jesus comes among them, and we see this this puzzling little thing in passing, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that is, is very, very revealing. Jesus' breath comes from within him. And with that symbolic act, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So now let's reflect on something here, the name Spirit. We've said we understand what the name Father means, right? We understand what the name Son means. What about Spirit? Well, both the Hebrew and the Greek word, ruach and pneuma, respectively, both those words mean breath. It can mean wind, but they, they mean breath. What's breath? It's something that one breathes out from within himself. And so the spirit is called the breath. I mean, that's what that word means. We, we use the word spirit, but it's the same word for breath. Well, if he's breath, whose breath is he? Well, we've seen he's the breath of the Father and he's the breath of the Son. He proceeds both from the Father and the Son. And so even as Jesus had said in John 15 that he proceeds from the Father... So now here he himself breathes and says, receive the Holy Spirit. The breath comes from him, depicting his gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so that helps us understand a verse like Romans 8, 9. Turn there with me if you would. Romans 8:9. not too hard to find, shouldn't be. There a number of really wonderful things about the Holy Spirit here. We will probably return here in a week or two to come. But just to focus on verse 9, here's an interesting thing, isn't it? However, you were not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Okay, hope you read that with me. Now, I have a question to which the answer will be found in this verse. Whose spirit is the spirit? He's the spirit of whom? Spirit of God. Let me ask again. Whose spirit is the spirit? Christ. Well, now how many spirits are there? Just the one spirit. And whose spirit is he? Is he the spirit of God or the spirit of Christ? Christ. And the answer is yes, because he proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that's why you sometimes see him called the Spirit of Christ, and you sometimes see him called the Spirit of God. It it need not be confusing. The reason why he's called both is because he proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And this is what distinguishes him. They possess the same nature, same mind, same will, same perfections, but they are distinct in their relations to one another. Father and Son do not proceed from the Spirit. Spirit proceeds from Father and Son. So, um, this is a procession, like I said, that has no beginning and it has no ending. And we can just look at that and heads explode, but... That's it. I mean, that's the truth of it. That's what Scripture reveals. It should surprise us if we did understand it. <laughs> that, that, that's a clue that this is probably not God you're hearing. If you hear a presentation, you say, all right, I get all of that. Well, then that's probably not God because God is infinite and, and we just aren't and we never will be. So uh, the Athanasius, Athanasian Creed is one of those uh, creeds, ancient creeds. It goes back to the 5th or 6th century. And though it's called the Athanasian Creed, it's, it's like the letter to the Hebrews. We don't really know who wrote it. And like the letter to the Hebrews, it's, it's really, really valuable. And it's taught the church for centuries. Um, and it's a very good biblical statement of what the Bible teaches Uh, that helps us understand the truth and helps us understand what is error. So I just give you a little clip from it here. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So my advice would be to read that over several times slowly after the service, and <laughs> and within time it may it may become a bit more clear that this is a good concise statement of what the Bible says. So he's described he's described in eternal relations, and letter B. Breathe easy. This is a little easier. This next part, letter B. He is distinct from impersonal forces. Let me explain that before I show it. He's distinct from impersonal forces. Now, if you try to talk to a Jehovah's Witness about the Holy Spirit, you'll find that they don't believe that he, is a, that he is God or that he is a person. Their phrase is, he's the invisible active force of God. And oddly, you'll find this also in many scholars that will say the same thing, that very often the Spirit is really just a power of God or it's a force of God. But as I'm going to show you, I'll show you two of many scriptures that actually distinguish the spirit from power or force. Now, let me take you to a well-known one. If you can find Zechariah easily, well, then do so. And, uh, and you say nobody can find Zechariah easily. Well, if you can find him in a reasonable amount of time, find Zechariah chapter 4. And when you see verse 6, you'll say, oh, okay, I know that verse. Oh, good. We do all know that verse. But if we thought about it in this, in this light. Zechariah 4.6, Then the angel who was speaking to Zechariah answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. So not by two things. What two things? Might or Power. But, and now this word, but in Hebrew, actually is a, an emphatic way of saying it. So I might trans—I in fact, I do translate it, but by contrast. So not by might, not by power, but totally differently, by my spirit, says Yahweh. All right, so what does that teach us about the thing we're thinking about? The spirit is not might or power. You see that? Spirit is not just another way of saying God's power. And the Spirit's not just another way of saying God's might. He is sui generis. He's, he's in a category of his own. He's a person. He's Yahweh the Spirit. So the Spirit is not might, and it's not power. And when the Jehovah's Witness or anyone else says that he's just the invisible active force of God, he's not saying what the Bible says. And the New Testament makes that same point. The next verse is Luke four, fourteen. I'll just read to you, Uh, feel free to look there, but Luke 4, 14, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district, in the power of the Spirit, the power given him by the Holy Spirit. If the power is given him by the Holy Spirit, then the power is not the Holy Spirit, but it's given by the Holy Spirit, do you see? So he's, he's God and he's a person, he's not a force. And that just, again, underlines why we must be careful to speak of him as he and not as it. And to think of him as a person and not as a thing or a commodity. So, you know, just absolutely free and no extra charge. Let me remind you of Matthew 28:18 and 19. Right, where Jesus appears after his resurrection and he commissions the apostles and what does he say? He says, go and uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How many names does Jesus say, did you notice? The name, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he unites them and yet names three Why one name? Because it's one God. Why three? Because it's three persons. And these three persons Jesus speaks of in the same breath. Am I baptized in the name of the Father or of the Son? Both. Father and the Son or the Holy Spirit? All three. Why? Because he's one God. Three persons. Now, try to imagine you're Jehovah's Witness. Don't try too hard. But What you have to say this verse is saying, then, is I'm to be baptized in the name of the Father, who is a God and is a person, and the Son, who is not God, but is a person, and the Holy Spirit, who is neither God nor a person. That doesn't make any sense at all. But the biblical doctrine, of course, makes perfect sense. So, the Spirit is a person described in eternal relations, distinct from impersonal forces, and finally, displayed in biblical teachings. And I'm just going to highlight four aspects of personhood, just four aspects of personhood. This is not exhaustive. And The first thing we see in Scripture is He speaks as a person. Number one, He speaks as a person. Do turn to Acts chapter 10 with me, please. He speaks as a person, and this is not the only place, but it's just the one we're looking at today. Acts 10, verses 19 and 20. Peter's had this vision, and, and God's really shaken him up. And after this vision, and these Gentiles are turning up at the front door, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, verse 19, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but rise up, go down, and accompany them without taking issue at all, for I have sent them myself. Now, does that sound, it does, When was the last time electricity said something like that to you? That the answer would be never. Electricity has never spoken to you. Electricity would not speak to you, and if it did, it would not call itself I. Because there's no, con- there's no consciousness or awareness of self as a person in electricity. But the Holy Spirit speaks to them. Scripture says very plainly, this is the Spirit speaking. And he says, I, and in the Greek text, that's, that's emphasized as the LSB shows. I myself, I have sent them. I, the Holy Spirit, have sent them to you. So the Holy Spirit speaks as an I, and he speaks to them. This is what a person does. This is not what a thing does. It's what a person does. Why? Because he's a person. Chapter 13, verse 2. That's the next one. So turn there or right next door. Might as well. Acts 13, verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And there's a little trick in Greek that makes it very emphatic. Be sure that you separate For me, Barnabas and Saul, to the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit has called them to the work and refers to himself as a me. So this is the command of God, who is a person, not of a force or something that does not deserve obedience as he expects to be obeyed. He speaks as a person. Secondly, his will is God's will. He shows a will that is the will of God. We're still in Acts 13. And look at verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. On whose authority were they sent out? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit exercised authority, exercised will, exercised the will of God. This is God directing Christ's disciples, his apostles, and he's, he's doing it in the person of the Holy Spirit here. And you see the same thing in the distribution of the gifts. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, which we'll look at more closely, I'm, I'm sure, in the future. But, but we see in 1 Corinthians 12:11, one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. So the Spirit exercises the will of God. This is something a person does. A, a force doesn't exercise a will. A force just acts blindly according to laws of, of its own nature that God created but he is exercising the will of God here as he distributes the, the gifts. Thirdly, he has personal intelligence. Romans 8 teaches this. Romans 8 verses 26 and 27. Now, again, words you're familiar with, but I wonder if we reflected in this light. Romans eight twenty six, and in the same way the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we read of the mind of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11 as well. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. Oops. Romans 2.10 is also good, but not what I meant to read. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. But to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the depths of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. he's spoken of as knowing this is something uh, a person does what does your computer know you say well it's got a lot of facts in it okay but what does it know nothing it knows absolutely nothing it it retains those facts because you've programmed or someone has written them on uh, the storage. And and that's it, but it's not aware, it doesn't interact, there's no mind there. But the Spirit's mind is revealed in these verses. And fourthly, he can be saddened, that is to say, he can be spoken of in emotional ways. Ephesians 4.30, you know this verse, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve him, do not sadden him, do not by your trashy words and speech and behavior uh, bring him sadness. Uh, you don't, you know, if you sped on your way to church, you didn't make traffic laws sad. Traffic laws had no feeling whatever about it. And gravity had no feeling about it. And if you fell within the last few weeks in the slippery sidewalks, gravity wasn't sad for you. It wasn't happy for you. It didn't na and na you. It's just a thing. But the Holy Spirit can be saddened. So these are traits of a person, of a person acting in the one nature of God. The Holy Spirit is a person. So just to conclude this then, what does this mean to us? To be taught that He's a person, what does this mean to us? Well, again, I'll just read, and and I, I would hope we never hear here someone speaking of the Holy Spirit as it, unless followed immediately by an apology and a correction. <laughs> Which everybody can slip, I understand that, but, but we shouldn't speak of the Holy Spirit, as is, is it, you know? What, what if your wife were hanging around you in a party, and somebody said, hey, where's your wife? And you said, it's over there. <laughs> How would that night be? <laughs> what would that evening be like after that? You called me What? Uh, <laughs> So, no, people, people are not well served by, be calling, by being called it. That's dehumanizing, that's depersonalizing. Well, the Holy Spirit should not be called it. The Holy Spirit is the person. And so when I have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, it's of person to person. Now, there's going to be a big point here that corrects a lot of, of bad teaching that's put out in the name of, of Christ. And again, it's particularly seen in the charismatic movement, but not only. Your relationship, Christian, my relationship with the Holy Spirit is as much a person-to-person relationship as our relationship with God the Son or God the Father. We are indwelt by a person, by God the Holy Spirit. He is a person who indwells us. So we should not think of or speak of him as if he were a commodity, as if he were a thing. Now, how many times have you heard, and and if your answer is zero, then I I say you need to get out more, I guess, or maybe not, heard the Holy Spirit spoken of in terms of being like filling your tank with gas. You don't want your tank to be half full. You want to be filled with the Spirit. So you don't want your tank to be half full. You certainly don't want your tank to be almost on empty. You want your tank full of the Holy Spirit. Well, that is a degrading way of speaking of a person. He's not a thing, he's not a commodity, he's not a fluid, he's not bars on the phone, you know, I'm, I'm only three bars on the Holy Spirit and I really want to be four bars on the Holy Spirit. No, 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 he's not a force, he's not a thing, he's not a liquid, he's a person. And so what it means to be filled with him is it means for his influences to be ruling me, to be walking in fellowship with him, walking in his ways, bearing the fruit that he's growing inside of me. It's a personal thing. It's not a mathematical thing. It's, it's not a, um, oh, there's a perfect word I'm thinking of. It's not a logistical thing to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a personal thing. It's a personal. And you'll read many books, and these are charismatic and non-charismatic, that will give you the formula for being filled with the, the Spirit. Well, you do this, this, and this, and that results in the filling of the Spirit. Well, again, that works with filling a car with gas or a tank with water, but that's not the way a personal relationship works. He's not, he's not, and this is something that, you know, we often have to think about because there are many, many teachings that amount to how to work God. You know what I mean? How to get what you want out of God how to get the kind of relationship, the kind of life, the kind of career you want out of God. And so here it is with the Holy Spirit, no surprise but shame, that, well, here's how to work the Holy Spirit. Here's how to get him to put you where you want to be in your life and make you feel the way you want to be and produce what you want to produce and have the kind of life you want to have. Well, he's not a thing. He he can't be worked, shouldn't try to work him, because he's a person and he's a divine person. And our relationship with him is a relationship with a person, with the person of the Holy Spirit. So this week, I just conclude you with two biblical thoughts. One with us, for us as individual Christians, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit? And I'm just going to pause there. What is a, what is it? Okay, I'm, I'm grinning. I say, what is a sanctuary? And the way I'm grinning is because I've teased some people for calling this a sanctuary. And, and I will tease many more people if I have the opportunity for calling this, this room, a sanctuary. Is this room a sanctuary? Well, let's ask, what is a sanctuary? What's the meaning of sanctuary? It's the place where God lives. That's what a sanctuary is. That's, God is there. God lives there. And so in the Old Testament, the holy of holies, that's where God spoke from over the Ark of the Covenant. God himself spoke from over the Ark of the Covenant. So that was called sanctuary, holy place, holy of holy place, most holy place. So this room is not a sanctuary, but if something is a sanctuary, what's that saying about that thing? God lives there. So now let's go back to this. Your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, and there's another, another verse that shows us he's God. He's God. It's not a sanctuary if he's not God. But his living in you makes you a sanctuary whom you have from God and that you are not your own. The presence of the Holy Spirit in me as a Christian means that I belong to God. I am, because what does holy mean? Set apart to God and His service. Set apart to the ownership and service of God. That's what holy means. Set apart to the ownership and service of God. If the Spirit is in me, I'm a sanctuary. I'm a holy place. And that means I'm set apart to the ownership and service of God. But here's the next one. Us as a church. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. In whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Well, there's the whole trinity there. A holy sanctuary in the Lord, that is Jesus, in whom you're being built together into a dwelling of God, that's the Father, in the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the presence of God in us as a body. So this room is not a sanctuary. And I I saw some movie with a, one of these cartoon preachers who got angry, and I can imagine getting angry with people in his church who were smoking during the meeting and were spitting tobacco on the floor, and, and he ranted saying, how dare you do this to God's house? And I thought, "Oi, okay. I mean, yes, there, there is a conversation to be had there, but that floor is not God's. I mean, you, you know what I mean. It's not a particularly holy floor. Yes, it is sort of set apart to God. It's where we meet, but the sanctuary is the people. God dwells in each Christian individually. God dwells in us as a church, as an assembly. The assembly is the sanctuary of God because God is present, because he's present by the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. Blessed truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this revelation and this truth about you and about the Holy Spirit. And we yearn to learn more about him and his ministry in the, in the days to come, but we've learned enough to fill our hearts and our minds as we think of this blessed person and of, of the works we've seen as works of creation and revelation and the fact that we know anything that we know about you because he has revealed it, because he so worked in the pens of men, the minds and hearts of men to give us words that tell us of you. We thank you for that. We thank you for his indwelling. We pray that we will learn more and more what it means to worship you and to walk in step with the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.